0: The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. How are we? Great to see you. Uh, it's great to be back. I was out for a couple of weeks. Uh, once because once of snow, uh, we, we all were out. Uh, and then uh, COVID kind of ran through my family, and uh, we're all fine. I only had a stuffy nose, but um, we had to make a last-second call. Uh, I actually tested negative, but then uh, I didn't want to stand up here and have my mask off and yell at all of you when you knew I just had COVID, so we decided to have Billy, uh, excuse me, Jimmy switch with me, and he preached Acts 18 last Sunday, and uh, we're actually going to go kind of back in time this Sunday, and I'm going to finish up uh, Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Acts chapter 17. While you're turning there, uh, if you are new around here, my name is Brian, I'm the lead pastor, and uh, really thankful that you're spending some time with us this morning. Uh, if you are interested in hanging out after the service, uh, we are going to have something we call Crash Course, which is just a, an intro to our church, uh, get to meet a few of our leaders and understand a little bit more about our church. Uh, we're serving chili, uh, homemade chili, not no canned chili at this thing, it's homemade, Uh, My wife made one of them, and it's amazing, and so uh, you're welcome to join us. It's going to be in the education building, which is just across the way here, uh, down at the bottom level, and that'll happen uh, right after this gathering, so if you want to be part of that, come on, all right? All right, so Acts chapter 17. Um, Over the last few weeks as we've been journeying through the book of Acts, we saw the first converts on the continent of Europe. So uh, Paul, on his missionary journey, brings the gospel uh, into uh, Philippi. In fact, if we can throw this map up real quick, uh, you guys can sort of see this is the, the entire uh, missionary, second missionary journey of Paul. Uh, if we zoom in just a little bit, what you'll be able to see is, uh, you. if you've been with us, you saw Paul and his team go from Troas, there sort of in the middle, uh, up to Philippi. And he preached the gospel in Philippi. We saw the first European converts. Then they moved down to Thessalonica, then to Berea, uh, and then Uh, Paul, by himself, made his way down to Athens. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Last week, uh, Jimmy covered Paul's entry into the city of Corinth. And as we continue through the book of Acts, you'll see Paul head into Ephesus. That's Acts chapter 19. uh, And then make his way back home. So that's kind of where we are in the story. Paul has entered into Athens by himself. And what has happened is they've gone through this region of Macedonia Paul, Silas, and Timothy proclaiming the gospel. The word has been very, um, uh, I don't know, provocative. It's been controversial. Many people have believed. Many people have been opposed, right? And so Paul now makes his way uh, into this city of Athens by himself. Mostly what we've seen recently is Paul meeting, uh, going into the synagogues and, and first proclaiming the gospel to the Jewish uh, crowd, because there's a, there's a familiar context there, right? They understand the Old Testament scriptures. They're awaiting a Messiah. And so Paul can go into the synagogue and say, hey, I know the scriptures like you do. Let me show you that the Messiah was actually Jesus. Today, as we get into um, Athens, what we're going to learn from Paul, how to engage with people without that kind of context. People who, who really Uh, are not attached at all to the Jewish faith, uh, people who would have really no understanding of the need for a Messiah or what Christ came to do. And I think it's important that we learn from Paul about this because um, whereas Paul was entering into a pre-Christian culture, uh, we are increasingly in a post-Christian culture. Uh, Not that we move beyond Christianity, but that many people are growing up without any context for the Judeo-Christian ethic at all, right? They have no idea who Jesus is. I mean, they've probably heard his name, but they don't know why he came. They don't know what he came to do. I, I have met people and interacted with people who didn't know what Easter was about, right? Like this is the culture increasingly that we are living in. And so we need to learn how to engage with people around the issue of Jesus who may not have any context for church or gospel or Jesus or any of that. So, uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, I'm going to read down to verse 34, uh, and then I'll pray for us and we will dive in. But I want you to hear all of this uh, at one stroke in context, and then we'll get going. Here we go, Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be in your presence this morning, the presence of your Holy Spirit, grateful to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are grateful that we are called the children of God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and we get to call you Father. Father. Lord, right now as we look at this passage, which I know for some is very, very familiar and others may be brand new, I pray that your spirit would help me uh, to rightly divide this text, to be able to articulate the truths that it contains, uh, to both challenge and encourage your people, and that we would walk away this morning with a greater appreciation for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name, in the name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, if you're a note taker, I'm going to go ahead and give you uh, point number one here, and it is the provocation of Paul. The provocation of Paul. You see here in uh, Acts chapter 17, very early he comes in. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he comes into Athens. Athens is a very powerful city-state. Okay, uh, You may know this uh, Athens historically was the center of arts, learning, philosophy. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates all kind of came out of Athens. Uh, It's also known as the birthplace of democracy. And so it's a place of ideas. Uh, That's why they say here in verse 23, uh, I think it was verse 23, that they spent their time in nothing. Um, uh, Oh, verse 21, nothing but telling and hearing something new, right? They loved sharing ideas, new ideas, and so Paul is waiting for his team to get there. Remember, he came about 300 miles from Berea down to Athens by himself. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him there. And what's he doing while he's there? He's not sightseeing, right? He didn't, he's not going to the Parthenon and to uh, you know, these, uh, the Acropolis and all these other places. He's people watching. He's observing the culture of the city of Athens. And as he does so, it troubles him. The text says he's provoked. Why? Because the city is full of idols. It was said in Athens that it was easier to find a god than a man. There were more than, historians have said there were more than 5,000 deities that were worshipped in the city of Athens alone. So much so that we even saw in verse 23, I believe it is, uh, that Paul, as he's addressing these folks, said, I, I even saw a shrine to this unknown God, right? So you have to understand that in in Greek and Roman worship, there was a God for everything, right? So if you uh, needed uh, a good harvest, there was a God of the harvest. If you needed a good hunt, there was a God of the hunt. If you were infertile, there was a God of fertility, You know, if you just needed a girlfriend, there was a God for that, okay? And so there were thousands of different deities. And so uh, they they even created an altar to, just in case we missed one, and there's a God out there that we don't know about, and we don't want to offend him or her, we're going to create a shrine to that God as well. And Paul sees all of this, and the text says he's provoked. Now, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear the word provoked. Probably many of us think anger and toddlers, right? So, but it's it's deeper than that. The the word that's actually used here for uh, for provoked is a mixture, uh, a d- deeply complex mixture of anger and compassion. Paul, when he's looking at the city, he is angry that people are giving themselves to false gods. He is angry that the one true God is being robbed of the worship and the adoration that he is due. But he is sympathetic to the fact that the heart of man is seeking a connection with the divine. Because all of us are built to worship. I don't know if you know that. But God has wired all of us to seek him, to to worship. And if we don't worship the one true God, we will worship false gods. That's how every single one of us is, is made and created. That's why when you go to a concert, you, people used to hold up lighters. Now they hold up their smartphone flashlights, right? When they're, and they're all ha- eyes closed and hands up when their song comes on. That's why a 22-year-old can catch a football and people, grown men will weep, okay? <laughs> We are made to worship. So my question to us is, are we provoked by the idolatry in this city? Are we burdened? Are, are we upset that God is not being worshiped? And are we compassionate towards the fact that people we know are giving themselves to so-called gods that will never bring them what they long for. An idol very simply can be summarized as a thing that, that people turn to for needs that only Jesus can meet. I wonder if we've even thought about what some idols in our culture in this city might be. As I was thinking about this, a couple came to my mind. Um, I I think in our area, a lot of people worship pleasure and recreation. You will find people who move here for fun, right? Because of the outdoors. Uh, I like to go kayaking, mountain biking, hiking. None of that stuff's wrong or bad, by the way, right? We're enjoying God's creation. But people will move here even though they are sabotaging their own Ability to be successful—I'm I'm using quotes because I don't know if that's really the measure of success. But American success, right? M- most people will will work a low-wage job, never be able to afford a home, that kind of stuff, in order to have fun here. Uh, it's there's a someone once said about Portland. I think it's uh, similar to Asheville as well. Uh, Asheville, Portland is where people, young people, go to retire. Uh, Because we have a lot of people with Peter Pan syndrome who don't want to grow up and just want to have fun, and so they move to a place like this, and they will sabotage their future to have fun now. At the same time, there are other people who've had success and been successful and can live anywhere, and so they move here too because they want to have fun. (laughs) Pleasure and recreation. I think some people in our city uh, worship activism and causes. They find their identity in being an activist, and giving themselves to to whatever the cause is of the day that they feel most passionate about. Of course, a general idol in in our culture, in American culture in general, is people, relationships, right? We we attach ourselves to people who are not good for us because there's something that they give us that only Jesus can really give us. Many people in this city give themselves to all kinds of other spiritualities, because, again, they're looking for a connection to the divine. And uh, what's interesting is there's a growing category. In fact, the most recent studies say uh, about a third of people in their 20s would consider themselves spiritual but not religious, okay? Meaning they crave peace, inner peace, purpose for their lives. They, they are longing for something that will help them deal with the shame that they experience for not being enough, yet these same people trust their own intuition uh, over any sacred text, and I'm always like, don't trust yourself, because you're you're the one who got yourself into these problems, you know what I mean? Um, And they're very skeptical of quote-unquote organized religion, I've used a lot of air quotes this morning, I apologize, Um, just recognizing that. uh, they're skeptical of organized religion or, or any group that has like official doctrine. Why? Because we want God on our terms, not on his terms, right? So do we care that there are people in our city, people that we know, that we live next to, work beside, uh, are friends with, go to the gym with, who are giving themselves to thousands of other things and missing the true God? That mixture of anger and compassion is very important, okay, because without a righteous indignation, we will not have the courage to say anything about Jesus to people. But without compassion, we won't do it with humility and gentleness either. So some of you all are provoked, and you've got the indignation thing down. You've got to work on the humility and the, and the gentleness, and some of you have that compassion, right? Right? But, but it doesn't bother you, doesn't anger you that those same people that you love are missing, are, are dishonoring the one true God in their pursuit of spirituality or success or whatever. So Paul is provoked, and his provocation compelled him to engage, as it should for us. You see here in the text, you guys with me, uh, that he goes to the synagogue, which is his normal custom, right, to engage with the religious Jews, but then he goes to the marketplace, and he reasons with anyone who happens to be there. Now, there's not a good way to explain the marketplace, because it wasn't just like the farmer's market, okay? It, it was um, really city center, The center of all of the culture of the town. The best thing that I could think of, and maybe this is not even an accurate representation, but if you went to a four-year university and they had a student union, be kind of like that. You've got uh, student government meeting there. You've got athletes over here meeting all in this sort of same place. There's always the guy with the hacky sack, you know, in the corner. And some dude strumming a guitar. There's people think that they're good poets that are reciting stuff to. I mean, it's all happening, right, in the student union. And, and so that's kind of what the marketplace was. And so Paul goes there, and he's reasoning with people. He's dialoguing. He doesn't come in and say, all right, you dirty idolaters, let me tell you what's true, right? He, he's asking questions. He's engaged in conversation. He wants to know what is driving them, what their motivations are. He's, he's listening to their perspectives Being curious about other people honors them and provides opportunity, natural opportunity, to share about Christ. Now, even still, he endured criticism. You see this also in the text. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, I'm not going to get into what those things meant uh, as much this morning, but they were conversing with him and some some said, verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, the word babbler here is really interesting. It, it literally translates as seed picker. It's this idea if you've ever seen like a chicken just pecking at the ground, okay? The, the idea of being a seed picker was like, you're a second rate mind. You've, you've just borrowed ideas from here and here and here and here and you're not really making cohesive sense of them, right? So they're criticizing him. It may be that they're falling under conviction and, and to fight it off, they're making fun of him. Some of us have had that experience, right? Where we've, we've, we've been convicted and, and push it away, and others of us have had the experience of, of, of talking to people about Jesus and enduring that. But either way, they're curious enough to want to hear him more on this. So they invite him to uh, this, this place called the Areopagus, Mars Hill, which is a, kind of a combination of like city council, school board meeting, and TED talk. And they want to hear him on this. I, I love this line, though. Here in um, verse 20, gosh, here it is. Nope, I missed it. Somewhere in the text. Here we go. Verse 20, my goodness. I even have a Bible with all the verse numbers right there, and I couldn't even find it. They say, for you bring some strange things to our ears. Now, these are people who are living in the age of Greek mythology. Have you heard of Greek mythology? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Have you heard about the one where Zeus wanted to get with some girl, and so he uh, makes himself into a swan so he can get with her? That's weird. (laughs) Or the one where Pan wants to get with some... There's a lot of them about guys wanting to get with chicks. So there was one with Pan wanting to get with some chick, and she was refusing him, so he turned her into into a bunch of reeds, and then he made a flute out of them so he could play with her. Pan flute, that's where we get that word from. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's one about Apollo who turns himself into a dolphin and then he sees a ship in distress and he jumps on board the ship as a dolphin and pilots the ship to safety. And they're going, you bring some strange things to our ears. This Jesus who died and rose again. It's like, what are you talking about? But they're intrigued enough. They want to hear more. And so they bring him to the Areopagus. Now I've spent so much time on that one point. Look at with me, but you're, we only have one service. So I can go as long as I want, right? Verse 22. Look at verse 22 with me. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. My second point is the proclamation of Jesus. So, Paul's provoked. And that provocation leads him to proclaim. So he's at this TED Talk kind of thing, right? And uh, it's his turn to share. And he says, I observe that you are very religious. Insult or compliment? Yes. <laughs> uh, the word can actually be translated either as religious or superstitious, right? Um, and I think he meant both. But, but he's finding common ground. I think this is really important. Um, there were over 5,000 deities, as I mentioned, worshipped in Athens alone. And so they didn't have half-hearted devotees. They kept all their shrines, you know, kept up. They would bring them food. They would put food in front of the altars. They would do all this stuff. People were into it. They were devoted to it. But but he says, okay, I even saw that there was one to an unknown God. Did you know that you can actually know God personally? Let me tell you about him, right? So him paying attention to the culture around him and being curious allowed him to find common ground to point people to ultimate truth to Jesus. Okay. This is really really important. I realize the art of conversation is sort of lost in our culture today, especially I hate to say it, but among younger generations. let me just give everybody a tip when someone asks you a question you answer it and then you ask them a question back that's called conversation i can't tell you how many conversations i've been in air quotes again where people are not reciprocating it's like they don't know how to also ask you questions it's very bizarre and so we've kind of lost the art of conversation but it's it's really easier than you think Some of you, you probably struggle. I don't know how to start a conversation that might lead to spiritual things. Here's here's an easy way. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? And they tell you, and maybe they ask you, what'd you do this weekend? You go, well, you know, Sunday I was at church. We talked about this and this, and you're not forcing anything on them. You're telling them of your experience, and maybe that leads to further questions and conversations, right? Um, Because the gospel is holistic, You can find inroads to have conversations that lead to Jesus about almost anything. I I personally have had conversations with people uh, that lead to spiritual things, that lead to the gospel, or at least lead to aspects of the gospel. I've talked about marriage with my barber, and uh, that was quite fascinating because I was starting... I forget how the conversation started, but I was able to talk about how for Christians we believe that marriage is a covenant. And that's very different than a contract that the rest of the world sort of operates under. And, and she was, like, fascinated by that idea, right? Uh, I've had conversations with neighbors about things like work and rest and raising kids, um, money, fitness, because obviously I'm an expert at that, uh, <laughs> Even politics. Did you know it's possible to have a conversation with someone else about politics without yelling? <laughs> you just have to do it in person and not on social media. But if we're curious, and if we're asking questions, and if we're listening, those, those conversations can happen, and there are ways to... Gently lead those conversations towards spiritual things. Now, we're not talking about making people into projects. I'm talking about just what's in you, the Spirit of God, the Word of God coming out of you as you have conversations with people. Eventually, though, you have to get to a place of proclamation, of steering it towards Jesus. Um, Now, I will say, what we're seeing with Paul, is him in front of a group of people and basically just giving them the gospel in a one-shot deal, Okay. That's probably not how it's going to happen for most of us. It's going to be a bunch of conversations, gallons of coffee or other beverages over the course of many weeks and months, okay? But here's how Paul starts. He says, you don't have to speculate about who God is because he revealed himself. Let me tell you about the God that you think is unknown. The God who made the world, verse 24, in everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that, there's a purpose in it, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Here's how he starts. You're speculating about God, but you don't have to because God has revealed himself. He is transcendent. He is self-sufficient. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is sovereign. He has put you in this time, at this place, in order to meet God. And he's imminent. He's not far away from each one of us, he says. So, so now he's explaining doctrine. Like this is who the God of the Bible is. He's creator, sustainer. He's sovereign. He has actually brought you to this place in this time to hear about who he really is. And ultimately, he's pointing them to the fact that the greatest pursuit in life is knowing God. Which again, it means that God is not a means to another end. I mentioned earlier that for the Greeks and Romans, um, they had a God for every different kind of thing. And so they worshiped that God in order to get that thing. God was a means to another end. But what Paul is articulating to them is the greatest pursuit in all of life is to actually know God personally. And you can do it. It's possible. But then he gets to verse 28. And he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Where in the Bible is he quoting that from? He's not. <laughs> then he says, for we are indeed his, as even some of your own poets have said, we are, his, we are indeed his offspring. He's actually using well-known cultural references from that day in order to point people to ultimate truth in Jesus. This is really important he paid enough attention to what was going on around him in the world in order to be conversant about it. And so I wonder what you might be noticing in our city, what you might be noticing in the world around us, in the culture around us. What are the philosophers and poets of our day speaking about? What are the questions, the assumptions that are being conveyed through Music and literature and film and podcasts, right? Um, I came across a few things recently that I thought were really, really profound. Now, I wouldn't call Elon Musk a philosopher necessarily, but he is probably one of the greatest minds of our time. And, uh, and he was being interviewed on a podcast, and, and they were asking him about uh, why he's so into space travel. And he said a couple interesting things. He said, number one, he said, I don't think there's any evidence for aliens, Right? There isn't any evidence, and so therefore I don't believe they exist. He says either that or they're being very, very subtle, which I thought was kind of funny. But he said if an alien wanted to, they could just come to Main Street and walk down Main Street and say, hey, I'm an alien, and I would believe in them. And I thought, I don't know that you would, because a man died and rose again, and four people wrote individual first-hand accounts about him, and you don't think that's true. But then he said this. He said, we need to get into interplanetary travel. We need to visit these different planets and do all this. And they said, why? And he says, because we have to know what the meaning of life is. His motivation for all that SpaceX is doing is to understand the meaning of life, which shows us that the questions that people ask in the 21st century are the same questions people have been asking since the beginning. And there's an answer. His name is Jesus. I also came across a song from Adele, and, uh, you know, she has a new album out not that long ago, and uh, there's a song, and I don't, I'm not advocating for the song, but I want you to hear some of the lyrics. It's, the song is called I Drink Wine. Some of you might have heard that song before, but listen, listen to how penetrating some of the lyrics in this song are. She says, we're in love with the world, but the world just wants to bring us down by putting ideas in our heads that corrupt our hearts somehow. And she says this, in these crazy times, I hope to find something I can cling on to because I need some substance in my life, something real, something that feels true. If that is not a cry for the God of the universe, I don't know what is. It's right there in front of us. Now, this doesn't mean we have to imbibe in all of the culture that's out there. There, there are some things we should stay away from, okay, that are not healthy or helpful. Um, but there's a lot in our culture that's just neutral. And you can understand the heart cries of the human beings that are creating culture by observing it. We need to at least be aware of what's happening around us. Because uh, verse 26 is also true for you and I. That God has determined allotted periods in the boundaries of our dwelling place. Some translations put that he has determined the times and the places in which we will live. And so, believer, I would say to you, God has also determined that you are in this time, in this place, at the job you're at, in the neighborhood or the apartment complex that you're at, in the classes that you go to, for a reason, to help point people to Jesus. And it's God who's going to save right? God saves people, but he uses us as his instruments. Would you rather be an instrument to God's grace going to someone else or an obstacle? Would you rather God could use you to proclaim the gospel to other people, or would you rather God have to work around you? I think I know which one I would choose. Now, if it's because you don't really know how to make inroads to the gospel in conversations, I would love to help you with that. We, as a church, as elders, would love to help you with that. Maybe there are some things that we could do to help spur you towards that. Here's how to start gospel conversations. Here's how to uh, listen for cues that could get you, uh, uh, you know, to, to bring up spiritual topics. But if you are resistant to doing that, simply because you're afraid of how it would affect that relationship with that person that you know and love, then I just want to ask you, is that more about them and their eternal destiny, or is it about you and your uncomfortability? So proclamation of Jesus. And then finally, my little timer tells me I have six minutes to do this last point. We'll see, timer, we'll see. (laughs) You can write this down, the transformation of Athenians. Transformation of Athenians. Not all of them, some of them, but let's look at it. Verse 29. You guys hanging in? So Paul, using their own colloquial wisdoms, I really can't say that word, cultural references says, being then God's offspring, as your own poets have said, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed some men joined him and believed. So it's the idolatry of the city that has provoked Paul, stirred him, and, and compelled him to engage with the culture and to find opportunities to point towards Jesus. And it's the uniqueness of the gospel message that has warranted him an audience with the thought leaders of his day. And he does not waste the opportunity. Now, one thing you need to know is when people went before the uh, the the leaders there at Mars Hill at the Areopagus, it was usually like a 20 to 30 minute conversation, right? If you read all of Paul's stuff here, it's like two minutes long. So probably what we have is the outline of his sermon, not the entire thing, okay? So there's stuff he doesn't say, but he probably did. It's just not recorded because this is more like his notes. You got me? Okay, so what does he say? He's related to them using their own cultural, I'm I'm gonna try it again, colloquialisms, there we go, That's really hard, the Q's and L's, as a springboard for the gospel, okay? And now he's getting detailed. He's going to press them towards a decision, or at least to think. He he, he at least wants to make them think, okay? And so he says, God is not formed by the imagination of man. I'm so glad we've gotten beyond that. (laughs) I mean... Isn't it true that we live in a time where people still tend to want to define God for themselves? You hear people say things like, well, my God would never fill in the blank, right? My God would blah, blah, blah. And I always think to myself, yeah, your God can't save you. Your God's crummy, right? Because your God looks just like you. What a miracle that you thought up a God who never has anything to say to you that you can learn from. This is what we all do. Uh, We create God in our own image. And it's a God who never contradicts us, who never challenges us, and who actually ultimately can't save us. If that's you this morning, if you're in the room and you're like, but I think God is like this, let me just, with all the love I have in my heart, you realize it doesn't matter what you think about God. It matters what God says about God. It matters who he actually is, not what your opinion about him is. And so he says, the God who who created everything has graciously revealed himself through the person and work of Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And so he goes on, he says, the God who created and sustains all things also demands something from us. He has commanded all people everywhere to repent. Repentance means to turn, turn away from ourselves and our creation of God's in our own image, to turn away from our sin, our rebellion against the one true God, to turn towards God and to surrender to him, to believe in him, to receive what Christ has done for us. And so he doesn't say it specifically in the text, but I have to imagine, because we've seen Paul's sermons throughout the rest of the book of Acts, that he does get very pointed about this. In fact, even earlier in Acts 17, it says that he was telling them about Jesus and the resurrection, which means he's going to tell them about the cross as well. So he would say, Jesus lived a life we should have lived, right? Always honored God, always uh, did the right thing. When he was tempted to disobey God, he didn't, and he did it for us. That he went to the cross, giving his life for ours to purchase us. He was our substitute, taking all of our sin, all of our failure, all of our foolishness, all of our stupidity, it was transferred to him. And Jesus, on the cross, paid all of our debt for all of our sin in full. And on the third day, the dead Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death and hell for us, and we simply receive with the empty hands of faith the finished work of Jesus, and when we do, we have peace with God. Our shame is covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have a family to belong to. Other people who have found forgiveness and connection through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we find a purpose for our lives. And right now, Jesus is alive and well, and he is seated on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling and reigning, and one day Jesus will return as judge. And as Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will either bow in worship of God or you will bow in shame towards him, but everyone will bow. So what happens? Just like Peter at Pentecost, everyone repents and believes, right? No. In fact, it's not clear, but it doesn't seem as though a church actually got off the ground in Athens. A few people believed, but if you think about it, uh, in the Bible, there's a letter to the Philippians. Where'd Paul go next? Thessalonica. There's two letters to the Thessalonians. Okay? Okay. There's letters to the Corinthians. There's no letter to the Athenians. Hmm. They mock him. As soon as they hear about resurrection, as soon as they hear that a man rose from the dead, a God becoming a dolphin and driving a boat, sure. But a guy raising from death, no. They mock him. This is ridiculous, and that's going to happen to you and I. When we tell people about Jesus... And if you've ever heard the gospel told back to you, there are parts that sound a little crazy, right? But it's true. Some are going to be skeptical, but curious. And it's going to take a lot of conversations, right? As I said, gallons of coffee, right? More often than not, our efforts at proclaiming the truth of Jesus are going to be painfully slow, and there's not going to be a whole lot of response. But, but some believed. Some believed. And as we obey Christ and, and find those opportunities to share about Jesus with people, some will believe. And you may be the one who gets to lead them to Christ, or you just may be the one who has said something to them that provoked them to start thinking more deeply about it, and eventually they give their lives to Jesus, and you've got to play a part in that. And all of those are honorable. But I'm telling you, even if just one person that you know comes to faith in Jesus, all the other stuff is worth it. (laughs) It's all worth it. And if anybody in your circle of relationships comes to Jesus, you I will let you baptize them, okay? And that's even cooler to be able to stand there with the person that you led to Christ or had a hand in leading to Christ and to see them be baptized, going under, identifying with the death of Jesus and coming out of that water as a new creation, Right? identifying with the resurrection of Christ. Like, what an amazing gift and privilege that is. And, you know, the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices over just one sinner who repents. Just one. You have an opportunity to be used as a party starter in heaven. (laughs) So, So here's how I want to end this. Who's your one? Who's your one? I would like to challenge us as a community to some of you may have multiple people that you're praying for on a regular basis but but well could all of us identify one person, family member, friend, coworker, neighbor, whatever that we will pray for daily from now until Easter Sunday. And here's how I want you to pray. I want you to pray for them to be softened and receptive to the gospel. I want you to pray for opportunity to share with them about Jesus. I want you to pray for courage and boldness, that when those opportunities come, you'll step into them depending on God's Spirit. I want you to pray that God would do what only God can do in their hearts, in their lives. And I want you to pray about inviting them to church on Easter Sunday. And here's the thing. There's, I don't know, a couple hundred of us here and online and whatever. If everyone prays for one, and let's say even half of us share the gospel with our one, and, and let's say that even half of those are even receptive to it. And let's say that even half of those are willing to come to church. And let's say that even half of those hear the gospel and respond positively to it. Do you know how many people that means would come to Jesus by Easter? <laughs> it's incredible. And I'm praying that God will do far more abundantly than all we could hope or imagine in the hearts and lives of those people through us. Amen? All right. Sorry, Timer. Timer. <laughs> Um, I got a couple questions I want to throw up on the screen for us as we get ready to respond to the Lord. These are all just sort of summary questions based out of the text this morning. First one is this. What kind of things provoke me? I don't mean like my three-year-old. I mean, what kind of idolatry, what kind of false worship that you see in this city, in this culture, provokes you, that blend, that combination of anger and compassion, that, that oh, it's not right, you know, and I, I feel for these people who are giving themselves to things that are not going to satisfy them. What kind of things provoke me? And maybe that fuels prayer points, right, towards uh, people and the things they give themselves to. Second question, where can I find common ground with non-Christians that I'm in relationship with? Observing their lives, asking questions, dialoguing, understanding the motivations, the heart of the people that I'm in relationship with. Where can I find common ground? You know, the Bible, the the, the gospel is holistic. So it applies to family. It applies to work. It applies to relationships. It applies to health, you know, and fitness. And I mean, you think of it, the gospel applies in some way, shape, or form. And so there's always going to be some common ground uh, with people who don't believe in Christ to talk about Christ, right? right? Third, what keeps me from talking about Jesus with my unbelieving friends? Now, I know some of you are doing this and you're, you're so courageous and filled with the Spirit and, and there's a lot of the rest of us who, like, we, wanted, we want to want to and we just, uh, it's hard to get anything to come out of our mouths. And so maybe that's fear, fear of man, Maybe it's fear of not having the right answer. Maybe it's just ignorance. Like, I don't know what I think I need to know. And and let me say on this one, if there's a way that your church family can come alongside you and help you, let us know what that is. You can take a connect card on the on the back side, the, the prayer side, and just be like, hey, I don't know much about the gospel. Okay, I was gonna use the, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, or Or, you know, I wish I had some ways to like, Start those conversations. What, if there's a way we can help you, I want to do that. But maybe it's just my pride or my fear or whatever that keeps me from talking to people. And then the last question is this. Who will I be praying for between now and Easter? Who's my one that I will commit to pray for between now and Easter? And it, you know, it doesn't have to be like the person in your life who's furthest away from Jesus. It could just be like, you know, one of your kids, <laughs> In your house, who hasn't even who hasn't come to faith yet? Who will I be praying for between now and Easter? Okay, I'm gonna leave these questions up. You can take a picture of the screen. You can write them down. Uh, we're gonna lead into communion now. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you forward uh, in just a minute to these tables. Uh, the the wafers that are broken are gluten free. There's wine and juice, whatever your conscience allows. Uh, if you're still a bit cautious and don't want to touch. The plates. There are rip and sip cups in the middle there. Uh, But if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to partake in this remembrance of the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us, right? He was beaten and bloodied and bruised and pierced so that we could be made whole. And what a gift. and so we break the bread, we dip into the juice of the wine, remembering his body and his blood. If you're not a believer, you can just stay seated during this portion of our gathering. Uh, as you make your way back to uh, your seats, there are giving boxes in the back. If you're new here and want to be known, a connect card can go in there. You'll find that in the seat back. Uh, otherwise, if you are a regular and want to give your offering, you can put it in those boxes. We also take prayer requests, so the backside of that connect card is for prayers, and you can fill that out. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Uh, and then we're going to sing a couple more songs and get out of here, okay? Father, thank you so much for these people. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, share the word of God with them this morning. Pray that something uh, that I said, uh, that you said through me, would, would stick and uh, would help us to be more courageous uh, as we look around us, as we are provoked uh, by the false worship around us, that you would help us, Lord, to, uh, to proclaim the truth of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would do far more abundantly than all we could hope or imagine as we pray for and share with those around us. We love you. We thank you for this time together. And I pray that as we respond now, you would be honored and glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.